Good morning. Welcome to the show. Hope everybody's having an incredible Sunday. Uh, it is Sunday, um, y'all. So let me just start by asking everybody to say a prayer uh, for the Ukraine and all that we've learned over the last week. Uh, we know that, you know, there was a decision made by a Russian president that has changed the world forever and added to history. Um another situation of what you can almost call war. I think we're still calling it an invasion at this point. But um, listen, with President Biden's announcement of further consequences coming to Russia, you know, you, you hope that that might have some impact. But right now we see what we see. And uh, let's just all pray for the people of Ukraine and, and pray for peace across the world. Uh, and um, listen, we always want to just kind of pay attention to those things. So it's Sunday. Say a prayer. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm off script because uh, it just that is what it is today, though. Welcome to the show um, on a on a lighter note. Um, what you know, introduce a homeboy. And if you don't know him, uh, you're going to know him. If you Google him, all kind of things are going to come up. Um, and we're just so happy that um, he took time last week. Uh, to come to Tallahassee and perform, to, uh, to do an incredible show. And if you've been following our promotions, you know I'm talking about Daryl Tooks. And uh, he's with us today on the phone. Uh, and Daryl, thank you, man. Thanks for coming on the show. How you doing? I'm doing well, Sean. And thank you so much for inviting me. And also for that pause for the world, for Ukraine, for all of humanity, you you mentioned that you had to go off script for a moment, and it, it just leads to something that I would be remiss not to mention. I actually qu quote the great composer Nino Rota, who wrote the love theme to Romeo and Juliet. He was a little boy growing up with prodigious talent in Italy during the Second World War. And so all around him, he's seeing devastation, insanity like we've never heard in the world. And he, he came to terms with what we call the artist's dilemma. How do we continue to try to make beauty and art and shine music into the hearts and to the lives of people amidst this chaos and this insanity? And we do it because we must. It's, it's something that we, we don't really have an option. We have to do it. Mm. And so to be, you know, to be speaking with you at this time and for you to stop for us to remember what's going on with our brothers and sisters in that area and the implications it really strikes deeply in me i recently performed his song um, a time for us uh, in my concert in tallahassee and i wasn't going to do it but actually my my youngest daughter tessa said daddy that's not a sad song that's a song of hope <laughs> and you yeah. must do it you know well yeah. it's it's ironic though because your return to tallahassee this week promoted 
unity over division and healing over hatred. Um, what, what drove you to perform this concert at this time? Well, I, I wish I could say that I was, I was some sort of a clairvoyant, but actually we put it on the calendar. As you know, you've got to plan these things well in advance. And we thought everything was going to be fine. And the coast was clear. And then the Omicron variant cast doubts on us. And, and during the late part of 2021, around the holiday, I talked to my youngest son, Channing. He said, listen, you know, my, my kids are very astute, and they really protected me through the through the pandemic. I got to tell you, but he oh, said, wow. yeah. By, by, he said by the beginning of February, all the, the the evidence is that this thing will be manageable. So don't cancel the concert. So we went forward in faith, in spite of the fact that we, we had some uncertainty, but certainly following the science, it seemed like we needed to go forward. And I know when we labeled it a time to dance. It, it, it's like we just haven't been out dancing, you know. Yeah, we haven't been yeah, out touching. We haven't, you know what I mean? We haven't been hugging. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's incredible, man. And and, and you know, you have an incredibly storied uh, music career. And and this week, though, you performed with your children by your side. Man, what was that <laughs> like? And and how special was it to be joined by them here in Tallahassee? Well, you know, the chairman of the music department, you know, Lindsay Sargent, the, yeah. the mighty arranger for Marching 100. Lindsay said, and he's known me, even though we're not that far apart in age, you know, when I was a kid, he knew me and he encouraged me. And so he told me in our rehearsal, he said, I just haven't seen that glow on you or on anyone in such a long time. He says, and I know it's not just because you're performing again after the pandemic has limited our reach, but he said, it's also for you to be doing this with your children. And it, it, it's, so it's really everything. You know, you have children, you know what it's like. So we were doing some gigs together every now and then. We got on a little roll back in 2019 and then, you know, the unthinkable happened with the global pandemic and we didn't do it anymore. But the concert in Tallahassee was actually the first time all four of my children were able to join me at the same time. I've had groups of two and three, that kind of thing, because they had busy lives. Well, yeah. that, I guess that means when they get older, it's harder to bring them together. So I need to take advantage of that now, right? <laughs> you know, Sean, I can tell you, long are the days, but short are the years, my friend. Wow. God, I got to use that yeah. one. Okay, I'm going to remember that. So let's talk about I know you will. Let's talk about this song, Lifeguard, man. It it reached number three <laughs> on the Billboard adult, adult Contemporary Charts and becoming the first black American to accomplish that. Uh, what did it feel like the first time you, you saw your name on that list? Well, it, it was definitely something that I was excited about and very pleased with. Um, and at the same time, probably what was most gratifying is that I recorded all that music for that record out in Chicago, Universal Recording, with my team. It wasn't something that a record company um, was in control of. We were a great team of young people who have worked with lots of cool folks. So one of my collaborators on that was, at the time, was uh, Miles Davis, his musical director. Um, my co-producer on it, Danny Leake, had been doing a lot of work with the Jackson Five from the time he was a little kid. So it was our moment to say what we wanted to say. So the, the fact that it became a hit and got a lot of recognition was important but not more important than the fact that it was an honest statement from us. It really was the music that we wanted to make at that time. Wow, wow. That's um, Now, what year was that? Do you remember? <clears throat> yeah, so the record came out in 1989. Okay. 
And if you go back and look at the time, you know, what that looked like in terms of MTV and VH1, you'll see very few black artists, if any, on at the time. But BET yeah. embraced it in a large, in a large way. And I did a lot of work with them, with them and Donnie Simpson had me on um, his show often and that kind of thing. Yeah. So I know everybody Googling the, the song right now and so that they can remember. Some of y'all my age will remember, but <laughs> can't, can't speak for everybody because <laughs> I'm up there now. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so you your Tallahassee roots run really, really deep. Uh, your father, the legendary Hansel Tooks, uh, and now <laughs> you're you're directing the music research at FAMU now, right? I think I was. Yes, I, sir. Okay. So do you have advice, though? And every time we have a musical uh, person on the show, a producer or whatever, we always ask this question because we always think it's relevant. You know, do you have mm -hmm. any advice um, for people trying to start a musical career uh, or in any show business from Tallahassee? Yes. So it's, it's not what it looks like, you know. <laughs> I don't think any career is really what it might look like from the outside. Um, if anyone's interested actually in studying music uh, properly and learning the business properly, our program is incredible. We, it's a collaboration with the music department where you do have a music pedagogy, but it's also with the School of Business where you learn about accounting and economics and business practices. We take classes in public relations, and we also have a... Uh, two studios where you learn all about the, the true craft of recording. So all those kind of things are going to help you. I, I think even if Prince himself, and we'll never live to see anybody more talented because there's no such thing. Right. But if Prince himself were coming along today, you know, I would say, you know, Prince, you need to come and study at a place like this because now with technology, people can approximate your accomplishments by sitting with their laptops and technology, whereas you were actually a virtuoso on multiple instruments. And so it's a, it's a different time. So show business is not what it looks like. And so I see my great opportunity here, Sean, as somebody who can help to guide the steps of, of people who are, who are enamored with what they see uh, on their various shows and what they hear and show them, okay, so now how can we participate in this in a meaningful way and a sustainable way? Wow, thank you for, for that. I know, you know, we had a um, producer on a, a year or so ago, one of the top 50 producers. Actually, I think he was mm -hmm. in the top four or five named Tricky Stewart. And he, he had an mm -hmm. interesting take on this, which I hadn't thought about. It hadn't hit me. But when he was on the show, he said, you know, people think of show business as a dream. And he was like, you know what? It, it really isn't a fantasy world. It, it's it's like real work and it's and there's real business involved in everything that that's going on and that people need to and I, I mentioned this because you just talked about all the things connected to it and that reminded me of what tricky was saying that you know it, it's a business it's not you know like floating in the air up there like if you <laughs> You don't mm -hmm. understand that there's a business aspect to this and that that aspect is the beginning of whether or not you advance uh, in this industry, then you're in, living in a fantasy world. He said it better than I'm saying it, but it, is that sort of where you get, you're coming from with all the things attached to the, the music itself, just the industry? Yeah, two, yeah, two things that come, come to mind. So in, in a class that I teach at Florida A&M University, called the business of music uh, on day one 
35 students staring at me and they all have various aspirations. I say, okay, today we're going to choose one person in this room and it doesn't matter who it is. They could be the best singer, the worst. They could be the best rapper, the worst. They could be the most gorgeous person you've ever seen or kind of strange looking. But we're going to pick this one person and their job is to let us elevate them to what the world calls superstar status. And if we do that properly, if they do their job and we do our job and we can sustain it over decades, your great-grandchildren will never have to work. Now, we're going to decide who that person is, but it can only be one. The rest of us will all benefit in that way. Their job is to never fail us because we put them there. Our job is to put them there, okay? Wow. And it's interesting. Now we're going to vote. If there's anybody in this room who's not willing to do this, if you can't be that person, raise your hand. Wow. And sometimes, you know, you get one or two people secretly raising their hands, whereas other people like, I'm in. (laughs) So it's a very very interesting phenomenon. And the other thing is that uh, my mother, on my mother's side, so my mother was a magnificent singer and pianist and everything perfect. She just was an artist. She wasn't interested in show business. Her mother had been a Broadway star. And so she was actually a bona fide star, somebody who was a lead actor, in an all-black play on Broadway in the early 1930s, late 1920s, that won the Pulitzer Prize. That's modified stardom. That's not something that's manufactured by an, an illusion. Right, right. When she signed with Jack, yeah, when she signed with Jack Warner and started doing films, here she went from something on that level to recognizing that the opportunities for black women were to be, you know, to do mammy roles or hookers or wayward women and this kind of thing. And it didn't sit too well with her. Um, So it's not what it looks like. You know, you have to really look at it more realistically. Wow. Listeners, if you're just tuning in, we are talking to Daryl Tooks. uh, And listen, he's had an incredible career. And if you don't know, let me just say these names so you'll know how incredible his career is. You know, he's had performances with Michael Jackson, Quincy Jones, Diana Ross, Roberta Flack, Sting, y'all. Sting, one of my favorite. Aretha Franklin, Dionne Warwick, George Benson, Luther Vandross, Al Jarreau, Natalie Cole. And yes, I'm reading from a list because I couldn't possibly remember all this, but Rod Stewart, Elton John, Ray Charles, Lionel Richie, and even Christina Aguilera. And he's performed uh, for Muhammad Ali, President Clinton, President Obama. Man, so you can get exhausted, y'all, just (laughs) looking at the list uh, of his career and where he's been. But I got to ask you, Daryl, well, is there a favorite performance that you've done or one that you consider most special? So thank you for asking that, Sean, because if we were, you know, we're doing this interview a special kind of way, but if we were hanging out all night and just really chumming it up, you would see just how much I mean it. Every opportunity to perform and to be, you know, working with the students and to, everything is, is actually an optimal experience. Now, having said that, I can tell you that if I look back on my career and realize that for a few weeks, I recorded with Leonard Bernstein when he was conducting West Side Story for great performances, TV special. Now, here's a man who at 27 years old was conducting the New York Philharmonic and he wrote this great music for West Side Story and he had never conducted it for recording. And I'm, I'm locked in time in the, in the videos on that on PBS and 
what a magnificent experience. So uh, I will have to say, considering how influential he was on my childhood, watching the young people's concerts and that kind of thing, and be a, being a big fan of West Side Story, which, you know, here it is again, up in a film, up for an Academy Award. That's right. But when I look back, that was really, really special. Now, you mentioned Sting. I'm also really, uh, you know, an extra little special thing with him was that when we were working on his record, um, Brand New Day, that won more Grammys, I think, than any of his other records. Um, I'm pretty happy to tell you that uh, in the studio, he was a little reluctant to do some things. And I said, listen, Sting, if you don't do it, who can? You can you can stretch and people will follow you. And he said to me, he says, you talk to me like you think I'm Stravinsky. I said, whether, whether you're Stravinsky or not, doesn't matter, but your fans think you are. So go for it, man. So wow. I'm really happy to know that I had a, a good rapport <laughs> with him and he was able to to loosen up a little bit. <laughs> wow, that's that that's incredible, man. I I um when I think about and I saw the this list of all these people, it, this is this is more than a generation. <laughs> this is more than a generation of artists and music. And when you, it, it's got to make you sit back and say you know, when you look back on it, even though you're still at it, you you gotta feel pretty much like there's a there's a there's a generation plus of incredible uh, music out there that you've touched. You may be too humble to say that, but but have you heard that? Well, yes, I do hear it, and um, one thing that helps to keep me just marching along, you know, is. Um, you know, so when I think about the fact, so you you also know my 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 brother Hansel. So he I do. He's, I, 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 I'm, yeah. talk, I'm gonna talk about yeah. him in a little bit, but yes, I do know yeah, well, him he's, very he's, well. <laughs> he's he, he's older than I am. You know, significantly, yes. we're best friends. But at the same time, so the reason I bring it up is, so I'm the baby of the Tooks family. Sean, I'm the youngest child of the youngest child of the youngest child, and somehow or another, in God's ultimate grace, here I am. With, with so much experience that I better have learned something from it. And, and also <laughs> I better have, you know what I mean? And, yeah. and then and one thing I've learned is that even though some of my favorites, you know, I've gotten to work with and I know, and they're still kicking like Stevie wonder and we're talking about staying and others. But when I think about the, the African American tenor voice, which is just the heartbreakingly beautiful voice of, of the world that, you know, that, there's a reason why they don't have the leads in most traditional operas because that's a romantic lead, you see. So when I think about my childhood and I think about listening to guys who should still be alive in their 70s and 80s, I'm going to name places, David Ruffin, Eddie Kendricks, Curtis Mayfield, wow. my great friend Luther Vandross, wow, yeah. Sam Cooke, Rocky Wilson. Where are these guys? Um, you know, uh, Donnie Hathaway. You know, I sang those duets with Roberta Flack at Carnegie Hall. I mean, these people are the heartbreakingly beautiful tenor voices. Baritone voices are magnificent. There are times I wish I had one, but the tenor voice is made to have a cry in it and to know that those men with that cry in their voice, that heartbreakingly beautiful, moving sound who were the architects of why I sing a certain way, we all lo we lost them all prematurely. Yeah. So, so... And it, so right off of your question of, of what it means to me to have had these experiences, I think most importantly, it, it means, or equally importantly, it means that I need to remind others 
you know, of, of where we came from and, and where we where we must go and how we have to try to stay there. You know what I'm trying to articulate here? I absolutely do. A deep feeling. A absolutely, deep feeling. Yeah, mm-hmm. no. I, I feel that, and I, I, I know our listeners will too, but it actually brings me to my next question too is, you know, you were the founding musical director uh, of Black to Broadway, um, showcasing talents of, of you, you mentioned some of them, but Tony Award winning performances like Melba Moore, Jennifer Holliday, mm-hmm. uh, Cheryl yeah. Lee Ralph, and Billy Porter. Yeah. Why is it important to bring more diversity to Broadway? And and and, and I guess the follow up would be, how can we see even more black stars on on that Broadway stage? Yeah, well, that's great. So there was a moment. Um, I lose track of some of the years, but there was a moment when there were quite a few black musicals and plays. And um, But what has happened to the credit of one of my main arrangers and collaborators, Joseph Joubert. Joseph is a conductor and orchestrator for Broadway, and he is a black man. And I can tell you there are five or six other black people and uh, black women and men who are conducting on Broadway because he helped to open the door. So that's the first thing. We've got to stop being the last black person who copies something you know it's, it's interesting when we, we oh he's the first one who did this the first but often it's the first and the last yeah it's wow. like you you and we can't we can't continue to have that so that's one thing so we have to look at ourselves and hold ourselves accountable um and at the same time why is it so important i had some years teaching quite unexpectedly at new york university i got a surprise call and um, I was asked to come and put together a music curriculum in a new um, area in the drama department at Tisch School of the Arts at NYU. And in those 10 years that I was doing that, I really came to understand the unique impact that theater has on people. It's, it's a cast of people doing a, a special work with a special message and every night it's different. I remember Luther used to go see Dream Girls every week. Vandross did. <laughs> wow. And and Jennifer knew that too, because I got to know Jennifer. In fact, I played with her at the White House, and I saw Jennifer Holiday, and I saw her when I went to participate um, in the Broadway reboot right before the variant hit. We did a big thing at the Winter Garden Theater, and I hadn't seen Jennifer for a long time. And and um, I, you know, walked over to her, and we had a really, really special reunion right there on the stage. But part of my involvement with that also intersected with uh, the great Jeffrey Holder and his wife Carmen de Lavalot. Once again, here's somebody who just he won a Tony Award as a, as for choreography and for fashion design for The Wiz. But he took a liking to a young Daryl Tooks, and instead of kind of looking the other way, he would call up and say, where's Tooks? He should be here. That kind of thing. And yeah, we have to do yeah. more of that. Wow. <laughs> you know, I, I do want to ask you, I, I got a chance to see Terrence Blanchard's mm-hmm. most recent Fire Shut In My Bones, which black American conductor there, um, mm-hmm. black mm-hmm. Americans mm-hmm. Uh, involved in the, in the directing and the producing. Amazing. I, did you get a chance to see it? No, so I didn't see it, but I got to tell you, I know that you contributed, you, you know, some to that in terms, you know, your work, and, and I read what you had to say about it, and how you helped to support it, and thank you for that. I'm a fan of Blanchard's. Um, my my oldest son Christian was there opening night, so oh wow. Had I had I had I known what I know now about your involvement, 
I could have, I would have certainly asked him to introduce himself. Um, but yeah, yeah, but he, he was excited. He said it was, he said it was just transformational for him to experience it. It was for, for me too. Even that involvement was was uh, I was honored to be asked. But um, but even the opportunity to be able to go and and kind of. <laughs> I, I just thought it was incredible. Um, I, I've I've taken a lot of your time, but I do want to ask you. You you mentioned your brother, um, Hansel Tux. Um, you know my my wife. She my nickname. She calls me Tootie. <laughs> Two Tooties in the house. <laughs> and, and I know how I got my name, but I wanted to find out if you would tell us how Tootie how Tootie got your brother. Well, Tootie it's, got his it's name because. It's because at Jacksonville, at Stanton High School, my father, who's the first person in his family to finish eighth grade, he was an incredible athlete and also the valedictorian of his high school class. But he, on the football field, he he went both ways, and it was like, and his, in fact, yeah, one of my colleagues here, Dr. Parsons, at family says, oh yeah, my mom used to always say in high school, they would say, give the ball to Tootie, give the ball to Tootie. So, uh, my brother inherited. He was uh, inherited the tootie from daddy. He was little toot. Okay. Little toot. Okay. <laughs> you know, Sean, that's great. I'm glad to know. So if I see you um, walking down the street, no, no, can no. I say tootie? No, don't call me tootie. Okay. <laughs> it's not okay, a good name. It, you know, my, my it's, it, okay. it has to do with flatulence. And <laughs> so okay, that's my, terrible. That's so so it's terrible. a terrible well, thing, but that's what she calls me, tootie. And it's not really me. So it's, it's her. It's her telling the kids it's that's me. So, so that's, <laughs> that's so funny. That's great. Well, you know, I just want to mention one thing about about yeah. your support of you know. Please don't underestimate your support of Terrence Blanchard's work. I mean, he Spike Lee saw to it that people got to hear so much of what he was doing with the films and that kind of stuff. But he's not the first black person who's written opera. The fact that it, that it would take this many years. Yeah, wow. I mean, Scott Joplin's Tremonitia, you know, uh, I can't do the math on how many years ago right now, but it was decades, decades ago with Kathleen Battle in it and all kinds of people. I mean, there have been black people writing in every idiom forever. Uh, but not, not, not to mention enough. the fact that they, no, Beethoven himself <laughs> yeah. was black. Yeah. You know, so we we just don't we just don't get to tell the story, and when we do, shame on us if we don't take the chance. Well, listen, uh, come back to, and do something uh, some other time, man, uh, because you're amazing. And, and you come from an amazing family as well. You've risen to the top of your industry, your brother, who I know well, the top of his industry, and uh, just an incredible family that we're glad to, to call our own. So thanks for taking this time with me, man. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to getting together and, you know, moving me forward. And, and you know, all the best to you and your family. Okay. All right, Daryl. Don't call me Tootie. <laughs> I won't. I we'll won't. Talk, we'll talk soon. Uh, listeners, stay with us for a short Pittman point right after this. It's time for Pittman's Point on 96.1 Jams. Welcome back to the show. Now it's time for the Pittman Point. Uh, today, y'all, marks the last Sunday of Black History Month here in 2022. It's been a month of reflection, a month of honor, a month of pride. Uh, but it can't stop there, y'all. It can't just be a month. Uh, at a time when black history is literally being wiped out of our schools, 
We have to commit ourselves to celebrating uh, black history because black history is American history each and every single day. It's no longer enough to to just wait for February to roll around uh, and then we decide that it's time to put our history uh, on display. Let's do it every day, y'all. So the Pittman point is make every day Black History Day. Celebrate our impacts. Rejoice in our victories and our voices. Honor our leaders and our leadership. Honor our communities. And remember, just remember, try to remember where we came from. Support our black businesses and give, give, yes, give. Be a philanthropist, y'all. Give to our black causes. And just because the word is big, philanthropy, philanthropist, doesn't mean you have to give big. Just give what you can, when you can, to our black causes. We must continue to live black history every single day. And in fact, we do, because that's what we are. This has been the Sean Pittman Show, y'all. We'll see you in seven.